Welcome, my name is Quanta Jeffries, and this is Living Theology. You know, before we get started today, it occurs to me that I don't think I've ever really introduced myself aside from my name. You know, who am I? What's my background? All that good stuff. Currently, I'm the Director of Faith Formation and Evangelization at Christ the King Parish in Indianapolis. And before that, I was a high school theology teacher. My educational background uh, is from the Franciscan University of Steubenville, where I received a Master of Arts in Theology. And, um, and I've been very inclined to theology ever since. Uh, it's, it's really the bulk of my reading. I, I love just digging into truly theological works and spiritual works um, and uh, and keeping those juices flowing, if you will, that really got uh, generating at that uh, grad level work. But I think what's been most influential in my theological thought is not necessarily the grad work. It, 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 it gave the foundations, if you will, for for uh, principles, for how to approach things, properly understanding, uh, discerning, balancing, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, really it's it's my life in the church post-grad school that has really formed me the most. And that in two ways. First, uh, the groups and people uh, that I was interacting with. And second, um, my own theological and spiritual reading and my, that, and my affinities in that regard uh, post-grad work. So for instance, while at Steubenville, uh, one of my friends was Ukrainian Catholic and I and some others began going to divine liturgy with him and that started a journey for me where for not necessarily um uninterrupted but for about a grand total of five to six years i was a practicing byzantine uh, i was a practicing byzantine catholic i never changed rites canonically but liturgically theologically spiritually devotionally all that good stuff you know, I was, for all intents and purposes, a Byzantine Catholic, and it was the mode in which my mind uh, really operated in. And it was a real easy uh, transition from a theological standpoint for me to make because I was already greatly influenced and had a very strong affinity for the Cappadocian Fathers of the 4th century, so St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Theologian, and St. Gregory of Nyssa. And these three, you know, are among the Fathers of the East who constitute um, kind of that base and foundation on the particular expression uh, of Byzantine theology. And um, so already having that affinity for them and reading them, it was very easy to then just kind of come into Byzantine theology uh, through uh, that practice liturgically, devotionally, etc. 
and also in regards to um, the discipline of the East, for instance, uh, their fasting traditions and things like that. I've always had a very strong affinity for contemplative spirituality. So in the West, I was very much drawn to the Discalced Carmelites via St. Teresa of Avila, uh, most especially, but also, of course, St. John of the Cross and Edith Stein. In the East, I was very much drawn to the Hesychist spirituality. And of course, uh, you have Gregory Palamas, the Philokalia, and, uh, and some other uh, expressions of that tradition in the East. I found that those two, while definitely not being the same, you know, had uh, lots of similarities to one another. And it made sense to me that having such a strong affinity for the Carmelite spirituality in the West would also give me a strong identity or affinity with Hezekiah's spirituality in the East. I was actually in formation with the secular Discalce Carmelites, and my wife still is. God bless her. She's going to be taking her uh, definitive promises in less than a month now. But um, that also was very profound in my formation, going, being part of that community, going through the formation of a secular Discalce Carmelite, um, which is you know really about a seven-year process before you take your definitive promises. And I was there for about, um, oh, three or four years. I think it was about four years. So I spent a you know good number of years there. Um, before that, I was uh, very much involved for a time with the lay movement, communion and liberation. And, uh, and the spirituality and charism of that particular movement is strongly incarnational, very, very, very incarnational. And conversely, uh, because of that, also very sacramental, as in the sacramentality of creation. Um, but it's really expressed through that <clears throat> strong awareness of the incarnation and the mystery of the incarnation in our daily lives and and uh, and what that means in regards to that living of our daily lives and and all the various particular circumstances and people that we encounter so the carmelites communion liberation and the byzantines uh, seem to be those real heavy influences and it has been a very long time since i've um was a practicing byzantine so uh you know I have firmly become very entrenched uh, within the Roman uh, expression of things, not because I think they're better or more correct or anything like that. It's just uh, it's just where I am. Um, I, I began going uh, back to the Roman Mass uh, more than 10 years ago um, just because of circumstances and uh, and in regards to my teaching others, and being in uh, Roman Catholic places, it just became more my wheelhouse. And um, and so that's very much where I am and have been and anticipate where I will very much remain for the rest of my life. Um, within that, though, uh, you know, there are definite theological influences. As I mentioned earlier, the Cappadocian Fathers of the 4th century uh, in the East. But I also have 
a great affinity uh, for the medieval West, particularly the 12th century. And there was a, an abbey school in the 12th century. It was a school at the Abbey of St. Victor. And the teachers and preachers of that abbey are collectively called the Victorines. And if anyone has heard of any of the Victorines, it will either be Hugh of St. Victor or probably more likely Richard of St. Victor, whose mystical theology um, and spirituality was quite immense. But the Victorines were very well respected for a very long time and spoken of very highly by other uh, great doctors of the church, such as St. Bonaventure. In addition to the Victorines, you know, I, I think that also as, I'm, as I continue on in life, I'm coming to realize just how much the um, theology of our own day has had an influence on me. It's, it's what I grew up in, if you will, even if I wasn't aware of it. And, um, but I think in particular, and very much an awareness of this, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, um, his works I just find to be absolutely wonderful, and uh, and I love his theological approaches. I love his exegesis of Scripture. Uh, I think he is a master catechist. Reading his Wednesday audiences, I mean, he is a master catechist. So uh, he also has had a, a great influence on me and my theological thought and approaches, um, and just kind of that overall school that he was a part of. So kind of a good mix there of the patristic and medieval and today regarding um, theological influences. So that's me. That's a picture of me, the 10-minute picture of, uh, of, of my theological uh, background and perspective uh, today. I'd like to transition to an actual topic of theology now. We just had, uh, we just celebrated Trinity Sunday this past Sunday. And prior to uh, this Sunday, last week, I was at the office and I was asked a question. <clears throat> the question was, why didn't God have two sons? Why only one son? And at first I was kind of irritated with the question. Not, not at the person asking the question by any means, want to be very clear on that. But just kind of that question itself. My, my, my initial interior response was, why not three, four, five, or a million, all right? Who the heck knows? It's a mystery. And, and that's not actually a cop-out answer. It really isn't. You know, uh, it's a manifestation uh, for myself personally of that influence of the Cappadocians, and in particular, St. Gregory the Theologian. And St. Gregory the Theologian often uh, would speak of the need for a reverent silence before the mystery. And he was saying this while he was uh, just embroiled in the controversies, the Trinitarian Christological controversies of his day. And he was a great defender of the Holy Trinity. But he didn't want to be. He wanted to be before the mystery, to simply adore the mystery, to be in the presence of the mystery, 
to let the mystery of faith come into himself. And this is what we should seek as well. Now, his opponents wanted nothing to do with that. They were obsessed with all these questions and these parsings and the logic and all of this kind of stuff. And so to appease them, he would have to answer their questions, all right, and show that he could be a logic chopper even better than they and that their logic was nothing in the face of the mystery of God. But we can't always keep that reverent silence. And it's not that it couldn't be kept in this situation, but, you know, as the conversation ensues and we're kind of talking about it, you know, it's important to remember that while it was impossible for mankind to come to the knowledge of the Trinity without God revealing himself, the fact that God has revealed himself that he revealed himself to be a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one Son, one Spirit, one Father. That because he revealed this and because God is rational, we say that, you know, in the beginning was the Logos in the Gospel of John. That Greek word Logos, it gets translated word, but it also means reason. So it's, it's, it's a rational word. God is reasonable. And in revealing himself to us and making us rational beings, it means that we can, in a rational way, reflect and ponder what God has revealed concerning himself. So, well, along with St. Gregory the Theologian, my initial inclination when asked why only one son is to say, hey, how about we just, you know, allow ourselves to be in that mystery and not ask these questions. But we're a wondering people and these questions come up and God gives us the ability to answer them in a rational way. So why? Why only one son? And the thought that came to me has to do with the wholeness, the completeness, the perfection of God, his being the infinite one, the eternal. The father gives wholly and completely of himself to the Son in this singular act of giving to the Son. It is a whole, complete, perfect act in giving. It lacks nothing. Nothing can be added to it. For the Father being infinite and eternal gives infinitely and eternally to his Son. The Son is singular, not, not two or three or a million, because the Son being infinite, being eternal, being all that the Father is, except Father, he receives 
that singular whole perfect gift of the Father, he receives that completely, wholly, perfectly in its entirety, lacking nothing, nothing more to be added. There does not need to be another son to accept what the first was not able to is essentially what came to mind there. The son receives all that the father has in a singular, perfect, complete, whole manner. And it's the same with the spirit. And we can think of two analogies here. In regards to the spirit being the love of the father and the son, the father gives this love wholly, singularly, entirely, perfectly. It is one whole, complete, perfect, singular love in itself. Again, not to be added to, can't be taken from. And the son receives that one singular love from the father wholly and to himself. So there is only one spirit. So we're not just getting at the question of why only one son, but there's also that question of why only one spirit. And keeping in mind this giving within the Trinity, between the persons of the Trinity, we keep in mind that, and it answers why one son, one spirit, one father. Another way that we speak of the Son and the Spirit, we speak of the Son as the Word of God, and we speak of the Spirit as the breath of God. It is, of course, impossible to speak without that breath on which our words are carried. So that word spoken by the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, is one word, perfect, whole, complete, singular, unto itself, lacking nothing, not to be added to, cannot be taken from. But that word is spoken by the Father, the breath of the Father, the breath of God also comes forth from the Father with the Word of God. And just as the Word, so too the breath is one singular, whole, entire, complete, perfect unto itself, cannot be added to nor taken from. And it is this in an infinite way, because we can speak of the perfection of human beings, that we will be perfected, and yet our humanity is finite. The mystery here is that when we speak of perfection and completeness and wholeness in regards to the divinity, in regards to the persons of the Holy Trinity, we speak of this infinitely, eternally. And that applies to each person. 
So this is why one Son and one Spirit of the one Father, God Most Holy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God bless you all, and I hope you have a very blessed and wonderful day.